0: Hi, writers. I'm glad you are here for our new episode on writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. I spoke briefly in an earlier episode about avoiding surprise endings to our novels. And I received a nice email from Brian asking if I'd talk more about it. I'd like to try to make the technique clearer. So our topic is the need to avoid surprise endings. What does that mean? Surprise endings in fiction usually do not work. That is, endings that are a complete surprise. The literary agent Donald Moss has written, quote, Keeping a secret from the reader for hundreds of pages is a trick almost impossible to pull off. That's Donald Moss. Here is Raymond Obstfeld, the novelist. Writers either make the surprise too unpredictable or too obvious. What's especially annoying about this kind of ending is the intrusion of the writer's smug sense of being clever. That's Raymond Obstfeld. A surprise ending, and I'm talking about a complete surprise, is one writer should avoid. It's an ending where the reader could not have guessed the clues weren't there and when that happens the reader is frustrated with the story's ending for the reader the ending is unfair a surprise ending that the reader could not have guessed could not have guessed is similar to the ancient greek stage plot called deus ex machina where at the last minute in the play the gods intervened to sort things out and make things right, often resolving otherwise intractable plot entanglements. Sometimes the actor playing the intervening, intervening God would be lowered from the sky above the stage on, on a crane-like device. Deus Ex Machina is Latin for God from the Machine. Uh, And it's defined as an unexpected power or event that saves a seemingly hopeless situation. For the reader of a novel, a surprise ending is like a dies ex machina, an ending cobbled together in a way that could not have been anticipated. An ending that works well and which satisfies a reader is one, and this is a difficult balance, is one where the reader feels she could have guessed the ending, but she, in fact, didn't guess the ending. That is, the ending flows from the story rather than from unexpected developments at the end of the story. And this formula applies not just to thrillers and mysteries and horror, but to almost all novels in all genres. Even in genres such as romance, where most of the time the ending reveals that the romance worked and it's a happy ending, or in thrillers where most of the time the good guy wins and the bad guy loses, the readers don't want the ending telegraphed to them before they get there, and it's our job as writers to make sure it's not telegraphed. An example of an ending that works is Sarah Gruen's terrific Water for Elephants. I'm not going to give away the ending because if you haven't read it, you deserve the pleasure of the novel and its ending. The ending is not foreseen, That is, the reader, at least most readers, won't have seen it coming. The ending's a surprise. But it isn't the kind of surprise ending I'm cautioning against because the ending of Water for Elephants makes perfectly logical sense given the plot. And the author has laid enough real clues and enough misleading red herrings so that the reader at the end of the novel smiles at the plotting. What a surprise! but the reader doesn't feel that Sarah Gruen was cheating. The clues were there, and if the reader fell for the red herrings, all the better. Another example is Where the Crawdads Sing. Here, too, I'm not going to reveal the ending. If you haven't read this novel, you're missing out on a fabulous story. Here, the author, Delia Owens, has crafted a strong and moving character study of the protagonist, a, a young woman named Kia. The story's a coming-of-age tale uh, of a lonely girl who lives out in the swamps with her father. But there is a death, a young man who is linked to Kia. The author leaves solid clues about the death and also leaves deceptive red herrings. At the end of the novel, the reader fairly gasps gasps at the revelation regarding the young man's death. It's wonderfully done. The reader thinks, I should have known, but I didn't. Delia Owens achieved the perfect balance. Oh, another example, our last, is Presumed Innocent by Scott Turow. One of the best murder mysteries I've ever read. The main character, Rusty, is accused of murder. The author plants evidence, fingerprints on a glass, the fact that Rusty was having an affair with the dead woman, and others. Some of these are real clues, and some are red herrings, and the reader doesn't know which. When Tarot reveals the murderer in the last pages of the book, the reader wants to slap his own forehead. Of course, the reader exclaims, I should have known. But Tarot has made it clear, yes, maybe the reader should have known, but using red herrings the reader isn't allowed to know. The ending is a surprise that grows logically and inevitably out of the plot. In my entire life of reading, the proverbial hair on the back of my neck has risen only twice while reading a novel. One was when Thoreau reveals who the murderer is in this novel, in Presumed Innocent. It is breathtakingly well done. And the other time was when I was a teenager reading Bram Stoker's Dracula, when the narrator doesn't really know if all the rumors about Count Dracula are true. They're probably just rumors. And then the narrator spots Count Dracula crawling down the exterior castle walls <laughs> head, head first like a lizard. Yeah, those outrageous stories about something not being quite right in this Transylvania castle might be true. Wow, what a scene. Placing red herrings is important in reaching an ending. That surprises the reader, but shouldn't be a surprise, given that the clues and red herrings were in plain sight to figure out. The phrase red herring might sound as if it applies only to detective stories and murder mysteries, but it, it applies to all genres, and red herring should be, should be applied in, in all genres. Uh, as you know, a red herring is a false clue. Is there a rule we writers should follow regarding red herrings? Yes, they should be fair to the reader. That means a couple of things. A false clue should not be so contrived as to leave the reader angry that he fell for it, which is to say the false clue must flow from the story and and not represent a, a big detour in the novel. Second, the red herring should not be so clever, uh, so well hidden, that the reader could never have guessed it was a false clue. A good red herring is not so well disguised as to be impossible to guess it's false, but sufficiently disguised so the reader, in fact, doesn't guess it's a false clue. How's that accomplished? How's that balance accomplished? It sounds hard to do. But it is well done in novels published every day, so it can be done. And third, red herring should be explained by the end of the novel. How did the red herring come to be? And the reader should learn how it was false. It seems to me that a carefully plotted novel will naturally avoid surprise endings because the author has plotted sequentially, uh, A, then B, then C, then D, and so on. If that's the case, the ending the author is planning is likely not a surprise to be avoided, but rather a, a fully explained logical ending that nevertheless catches the reader off guard and is is highly satisfying to the reader. The red herrings have been explained and, and the importance of the real clues have been revealed. This is where we might consider creating a document I call a to-do list. It's, it's a separate document, in my case and probably yours, not a real paper document, but rather a, a file on my laptop. On the to-do list, I mention, among other things, the real clues and the red herrings I've left in the plot so that I remember to tie things up by explaining the clues later. Maybe as the novel nears its final pages. Uh, so if I'm writing in, in Chapter 5 that the police find Smith's fingerprints on a doorknob, I'll write on the to-do list, Chapter 5, explain later how those fingerprints on the doorknob aren't really Smith's. And if in Chapter 5 the the wise older police detective stares too long at the young detective, Seemingly without reason, I'll add to the to-do list, Chapter 5, explain later why Detective Jones stares too long at Detective Martin. This to-do list will help us remember things in our story that need to be accounted for by the end of the novel, Uh, both red herrings and real clues. Uh, unlike in our real lives, a novel is, is a complete circle where all the story threads, including red herrings and real clues, should be tied up by the end of the story. So there's a balance. We should shoot for an ending in our story that the reader should have guessed but didn't. It's wonderful when it works, and the reader will get a lot of pleasure as the story ends when it does. So that's our technique. We should avoid endings that are a complete surprise. If you are finding these podcasts about writing fiction useful and would like to support the show, please hit the support the show button below and it will take you to Patreon. And it would be much appreciated. I want to change subjects and talk about character descriptions. We writers paint with our words. We create images in the reader's minds and some of the most important images we can create are of our characters. This physical description of our characters usually should be on the same page or or shortly thereafter where the reader first meets the character. It isn't necessary to write, to write a huge description the first time the reader meets the character. A sentence or two or three will often do, and further description can be added, uh, added to the character in subsequent pages. But it's important to give the reader a strong image right away, right after the reader meets the character. Why is that important? There's a couple of reasons. Readers like to find well-drawn characters which is to say how the character looks, the character's appearance. For readers, it's a pleasure to find these descriptions. Our job as writers is to entertain readers, and a well-crafted description is entertaining. And, And this is important. If the writer doesn't paint a portrait of the character, the reader is offered no image of the character, so the character remains hazy in the reader's mind and a character who is hazy will have difficulty engaging the reader. The reader wants to know what the character looks like, and if the reader doesn't learn of the character's appearance, the character is much more forgettable. It's hard for a reader to fall in love with a character whose face isn't described. So creating the image of a face is important, and, and not only the character's face, but all, often also the character's body, Gestures, mannerisms, clothing. Maybe the character has a certain smell. Maybe he always smells of Irish spring soap or creosote because he works on the railway. Maybe he smells of a dog because he owns a bloodhound. And another thing, describing characters is fun for an author. We get to create something, like an artist working with canvas. I'm reading Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci. In Leonardo's notebooks, which he carried all the time with him, often hanging from his belt, Leonardo would draw characters he had come across in the street, sometimes just stopping in the street, drawing. He dashed off these wonderful drawings in his in his notebooks. We can be like Leonardo. We'll build a character for the reader, except we'll do so with words. Uh, Writing clear and fresh and memorable descriptions of a character is fun for the writer. I get enthused about the craft of writing, and maybe you do too, when I come across particularly fine prose. Let me read some character descriptions from famous novels which may fire us up to add character descriptions and to improve our characters' descriptions. Listen to how these authors build a portrait of their characters. Here is Robert Louis Stevenson's In Treasure Island describing Billy Bones. I remember him as if it were yesterday as he came plodding to the inn door, his sea chest following behind him in a hand barrel, a tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man, his tarry pigtail falling over the shoulder of his soiled blue coat, his hands ragged and scarred with black broken nails, and the saber cut across one cheek, a dirty, livid white. I remember him looking around the cover and whistling to himself as he did so, and then breaking out in that old sea song that he sang so often afterwards. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum in a high, old, tottering voice that seemed to have been tuned and broken at the capstan bars. Wow, that's wonderful writing. Here is Stevenson, again a few pages later, describing Pew, that's P-E-W. I was standing at the door for a moment, full of sad thoughts about my father, when I saw someone drawing slowly near along the road. He was plainly blind, for he tapped before him with a stick, and wore a great green shade over his eyes and nose, and he was hunched, as if with age or weakness, and wore a huge old tattered sea-cloak with a hood that made him appear positively deformed. I never saw in my life a more dreadful looking figure. He stopped a little from the inn and raised his voice in an old sing-song, addressed the air in front of him. Will any kind friend inform a poor blind man who has lost the precious sight of his eyes in the gracious defense of his native country, England, and God bless King George? Where or in what part of this country he may now be? Because of these descriptions, Stevenson's characters leap off the page. This wonderful writing makes me want to run to my laptop and try it myself. Maybe I can create such people for readers. Here is Arthur Conan Doyle's description of Thaddeus Sholto in the novel The Sign of the Four. A blaze of yellow light streamed out upon us, and in the center of the glare there stood a small man with a very high head, a bristle of red hair all round the fringe of it, and a bald, shining scalp, which shot out from among it like, mountain, like a mountain peak from fir trees, He writhed his hands together as he stood, and his features were in a perpetual jerk, now smiling, now scowling, but never for an instant in repose. Nature had given him a pendulous lip and a too visible line of yellow and irregular teeth, which he strove feebly to conceal by constantly passing his hand over the lower part of his face. In spite of his obtrusive baldness, he gave the impression of youth, in point of fact he had just turned his 30th year that's arthur conan doyle i don't know about you but reading this powerful description is a challenge to me i'd sure like to be able to paint a portrait like he can here is louis lamour in hondo this is the first sentence these are the first sentences of the novel he rolled a cigarette in his lips Liking the taste of the tobacco, squinting his eyes against the sun glare. His buckskin shirt, seasoned by sun, rain, and sweat, smelled stale and old. His jeans had long since faded to a neutral color that lost itself against the desert. He was a big man, wide-shouldered with the lean, hard-boned face of the desert rider. There was no softness to him. That's Louis L'Amour. And here is the description of Tom Buchanan in F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. He was a sturdy, straw-haired man of 30, with a rather hard mouth and a supercilious manner. Two shining, arrogant eyes had established dominance over his face and gave him the appearance of always leaning aggressively forward. And this is... Abbe Faria in Alexandre Dumas's The Count of Monte Cristo. He was a man of small stature with hair blanched rather than suffering rather by suffering and sorrow than years, a deep-set penetrating eye almost buried beneath the thick gray eyebrows and a long and still black beard reaching down to his breast. The meagerness of his features deeply furrowed by care joined to the bold outline of his strongly marked features, announced a man more accustomed to exercise his moral, f- uh, his moral faculties than his physical strength. Large drops of perspiration were now standing on his brow, while his garments hung about him in such rags as to render it useless to form a guess as to their primitive description. And here is the description of Tom Joad in John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. He was not over thirty. His eyes were very dark brown, and there was a hint of brown pigment in his eyeballs. His cheekbones were high and wide, and strong, deep lines cut down his cheeks in curves beside his mouth. His upper lip was long, and since his teeth protruded, the lips stretched to cover them, for this man kept his lips closed. His hands were hard, with broad fingers and nails as thick and ridged as little clamshells. The space between thumb and forefinger and the hams of his hands were shiny with callus. The man's clothes were new, all of them cheap and new. His gray cap was so new that the visor was still stiff and the button still on, not shapeless and bulged as it would be when it had served for a while. All the various purposes of a cap— carrying sack, towel, handkerchief. His suit was of cheap gray hard cloth and so knew that there were creases in the trousers. His blue chambray shirt was stiff and smooth with filler. The coat was too big, the trousers too short, for he was a tall man. The coat shoulder peaks hung down on his arms and even then the sleeves were too short and the front of the coat flapped loosely over his stomach. He wore a pair of new tan shoes of the kind called Army Last, hobnailed and with half-circles like horseshoes to protect the edges of the heels from wear. And here's the last one, a description of Merlin from T. H. White's The Once and Future King. He was dressed in a flowing gown with fur tippets which had the signs of the zodiac embroidered over it, with various cabalistic signs such as triangles with eyes in them, queer crosses, leaves of trees, bones and birds and animals, and a planetarium whose stars shone like bits of looking-glass with the sun on them. He had a pointed hat like a dunce's cap, or like the headgear worn by ladies of that time except that the ladies were accustomed to have a bit of veil floating from the top of it. He also had he also had a want of lignum vitae, which had laid down in the grass beside him, and a pair of horned rimmed spectacles like those of King Pellinore. They were unusual spectacles, being without earpieces, but shaped rather like scissors, or like the antenna of the tarantula wasp. Merlin had a long white beard and a long white mustache which hung down on either side of it. Close inspection showed that he was far from clean. It was not that he had dirty fingernails or anything like that, but some large bird seemed to have been nesting in his hair. The old man was streaked with droppings over his shoulders, among the stars and triangles of his gown, and a large spider was slowly lowering itself from the tip of his hat as he gazed and slowly blinked at the little boy in front of him. His mild blue eyes, very big and round under the tarantula spectacles, gradually filmed and clouded over as he gazed at the boy, and he turned his head away with a resigned expression, as though it was all too much after all. Well, let me do one more. This is uh, The Artful Dodger, in Charles Dickens's Oliver Twist. He was a snub-nosed, flat-browed, common-faced boy enough, and as dirty a juvenile as one would wish to see. But he had about him all the airs and manners of a man. He was short of his age, with rather bow-legs and, and little sharp, ugly eyes. His hat was stuck on the top of his head so lightly that it threatened to fall off every moment and would have done so, very often, if the wearer had not had a knack of every now and then giving his head a sudden twitch, which brought it back to its old place again. He wore a man's coat, which reached nearly to his heels. He had turned the cuffs back, halfway up his arm, to get his hands out of the sleeves, apparently with the ultimate view of thrusting them into the pockets of his corduroy trousers, for there he kept them. He was, altogether, as roistering and swaggering a young gentleman as ever stood four feet six, or something less, in the Bluchers. Aren't these wonderful descriptions? I just love reading these descriptions of their characters from the masters. I learn something every time I do. Maybe these famous character descriptions will light a fire under us. We, too, can memorably describe our characters. The descriptions will make our readers glad they're reading our story, and we'll have fun writing them. After visiting Merlin and Tom Joad and the Artful Dodger, we've arrived at the end of this episode. I'd be glad to receive a message from you at Seattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer, and I hope you will keep tapping those keys.